Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of What Are You Talking About? presented by FenleyRoadSports.com. I'm your host, Bob. I'm hanging out talking sports with my older brother, Chris. Chris, what's going on, man? Not much. Uh, I think most people on this podcast know that I'm a Patriots fan, so this weekend was not particularly fun, but still a great game. No, definitely definitely a good game, and, um, you know, Manning-Brady rivalry transcends football. A lot of people were tuned in, and a lot of people had uh, things at stake because everybody seems to have a side of all the casual football fans, so uh, that was... Fun to, fun to have uh, one last time. So uh, before we get into it, uh, again, welcome. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk a little football today, basketball. We're going to go to baseball a little bit as well, get some college hoops in there for you. But as Chris said, we're going to lead with Manning versus Brady. Chris, let's just get into it. What what are your thoughts on that game? Well, I mean, it was huge. I mean, it was the 17th time these two great quarterbacks have met. And the fourth time they met in the AFC Championship game, the fifth time they met in the playoffs. So, and it's probably the last time they'll face off against one another because we're not going to get into the Manning in the offseason. But I think it's pretty clear that it's probably Manning's last year. But it certainly wasn't a typical Manning versus Brady matchup. I mean, at one point, both quarterbacks led their team in rushing. In fact, Tom Brady was the Patriots' leading rusher with a whopping 13 yards. So whoever had that prop bet probably made a lot of money. Uh, it wasn't. It just wasn't typical in any way. Both defenses dominated this game. The Broncos had a great first drive that was aided by a very bad pass interference penalty. Right call bad foul on the Patriots defender and that kind of jump-started them the other two touchdowns prior to the Patriots last drive were set up by defensive turnovers in the opposing team's red zone Manning had that lateral fumble that the Patriots converted to a touchdown and then Brady threw an interception inside their own 20-yard line that was converted to a touchdown so the offensive matchup of these two quarterbacks what did not deliver from that standpoint I mean yeah Brady stuffed his stats late with 310 yards but a lot of that came late in the fourth quarter most of that on that last drive where they had to go about 50 yards he threw two interceptions he was sacked four times and hit 23 times the previous high 12. So Brady was under pressure all game. And then there's Peyton Manning, who, if you look at his stat line and take his name away from it, and please don't take this as an insult, Manning fans, but it's it's a game manager stat line. 17 to 32, 176 yards, two touchdowns, doing just enough to win the game. Three sacked three times for 31 yards. So the Patriots defense also able to get pressure on him. Not your typical Manning Brady matchup. Bob, what were your thoughts? Well, you dropped the stat bomb that I was uh, I had in, in my arsenal. Tom Brady hit. Uh, I had the stat of twenty times, but twenty three times is even worse. Uh, that is the most hits a quarterback has taken all season. Now that's an unofficial record, so uh, it might not be right, but it, it's certainly one of the most time most hits a quarterback has taken in the entire 2015-2016 NFL regular season. That's unheard of when you're talking about New England Patriots and Tom Brady. The, their whole their whole scheme on offense is to get the ball out before you can even touch Tom Brady these short quick little slant routes these dump offs to the running backs uh it's all about the quick passing game and for the Broncos to blitz only 
16% of the time, but to get 31.1% pressure out of all the defensive snaps uh, is a great game called by Wade Phillips and guys like Von Miller was is just off the charts. I mean, already we knew he was one of the best linebackers, but he had a statement game, two and a half sacks, got an interception as well. He just terrorized the tackles. Uh, Sebastian Vollmer and Marcus Cannon could not contain him, but it wasn't just him. It was Derek Wolf and Malik Jackson uh, manning the, the defensive front line, uh, relegating the, the Patriots run, run attack, which uh, wasn't going to beat the Broncos e- even if they had a good day, but the running backs only had 31 yards, and they were able to stop that run game with really only five guys in the box at the most at any time. So the Broncos were able to get pressure on the Patriots, the most pressure on the Patriots since Super Bowl 42 when the Patriots lost to a New York Giants team that was able to get pressure in a similar fashion without blitzing. Uh, it was just really impressive. Uh, going back to the Tom Brady hits, uh, I'm getting excited with these stats, man. <laughs> uh, getting hit over 20 times in one game, in the Super Bowl run of last year, Tom Brady got hit 18 times the entire 2014 postseason. He only got hit once against the Kansas City Chiefs last week. Uh, it's That is almost as shocking as the fact that Peyton Manning is going to start in a fourth Super Bowl in 2016. Uh, if you told me that a month ago, I very, very much would not have believed you. And it's all in part because of that defense, because of the game called by Wade Phillips because that Denver Broncos defense is just loaded with studs. Yes, I, I mean, I agree. The defense was the MVP. Von Miller was a beast. But another underrated element of the game was special teams. The Denver punting unit, punting New England yeah. deep twice in that fourth quarter. That was huge because it really, with that pressure bearing down on New England, it's rare to see the Patriots offense get down in a shell, but you felt like they were just afraid to do anything. They were content to get a few yards and punt it out there and try to change field position. Those special teams plays, not one, but two back-to-back drives starting inside their own five, I believe, at least inside the 10, and then a yeah. penalty put them back on, on another one. It was, that was, those those two punt coverage plays by the Broncos were huge. Yeah, and by that point, the Patriots did figure out something to beat the Broncos, and that was going to an empty backfield, uh, running James White out wide. He's a running back, but he's a good pass-catching running back. Running him out wide, uh, linebackers uh, on the Broncos weren't really able to keep up with him, but you had to go five wide, and then you only have five guys blocking you, and good luck stopping DeMarcus Ware and Von Miller. Uh, Those were scary moments, uh, and it kind of... You know, the Patriots, for once out of how many games have we seen them coach brilliantly, they seemed a little bit lost as to what to do, how to take their risks. Um, I I am very impressed by the defensive game plan of the Denver Broncos. The James White adjustment was one good adjustment, but another one was, and they figured this out too late, their offensive line started allowing the rush to just keep going back. And Brady giving Brady room to just step up. Late in the game, they pushed yeah. him back, and Brady just stepped right up in the pocket. I feel like they made that adjustment way too late because they did that. That was one of the things they had success on their last three drives to get them to those two fourth downs 
and eventually the touchdown, which we haven't talked about yet, but those were some critical decisions. But but that was another adjustment they made that I thought worked out very well. Unfortunately, they made it on their last three drives. Yeah, it was almost too little too late. Um, and then I will say uh, they were able to to sustain those last three drives, be, um, mostly in part to Tom Brady making some great plays, Rob Gronkowski, Rob Gronkowski making some great plays, but they were also aided in the fact that TJ Ward and Darian Stewart, both Broncos safeties, uh, both starters, both of them left the game uh, in the second half. Those are the two guys that were assigned to cover Gronk on top. They're stronger than a cornerback. They can hit harder. Once those two guys got out, Gronk got going. Tom Brady got going. They started to drive. Uh, they got into the red zone three times late in the fourth quarter, Chris, and only came up with six points. What are your thoughts on those two fourth down attempts Uh with plenty of time to go. Well, first and foremost, Steven Guskowski missed an extra point, which is ultimately why the Patriots had to go for two at the end there with virtually no time left. But I'm not blaming him for the loss because that extra point was missed in the first quarter. It was 7-6. to six. So much happened. The Patriots could have overcome that missed by kicking the field goal with six minutes left on that first fourth down attempt where it was fourth and one, and they couldn't convert. If they kick a field goal there, six minutes left, three timeouts and a two-minute warning. Now, obviously, that changes everything because Denver, after those two stops on fourth down, they didn't do anything. They were very conservative. They were content to run out the clock. If they're only down five, they get a little more aggressive. There's no way they just run, run, run. They're going to try to get a couple first downs because they do not want to give the ball back to Tom Brady, only needing a touchdown to win. But I think if the Patriots kicked the field goal with six minutes left, they the way the defense was started to rev up a little bit, they were getting more pressure on Manning. They had some big moments, big sacks, forced Manning into some second and longs and third and longs late. I think that if they kick the field goal there, they stop them, get the ball back, and who knows what happens. Maybe the defense plays inspired. I don't know if the Patriots definitely would have won, but I think kicking the field goal with six minutes left three timeouts, and the two-minute warning, A, it mitigate, it destroys the need to go for a two-point conversion. They still would have gone for it, but they would have been up one. They didn't need it to tie. Secondly, you're the Patriots. You need two possessions to win. Get the field goal then, and then play to win on a touchdown instead of just tying on a touchdown in a two-point conversions. Look, Bill Belichick has four rings. He's a great coach. I don't like you know questioning coaches that are all-time greats, but in that situation... I have to disagree with the call, even though it was fourth and one, to go for it. With six minutes left, they should have kicked the field goal and played to win with a touchdown, but more importantly, destroyed the need to go for a two-point conversion. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you that that first fourth down attempt, uh, you had plenty of time. If you kick that field goal, it changes everything. Uh, you said it not only puts pressure on that that Peyton Manning and the Denver offense, but it changes the complete mindset of the Denver Broncos defense. I mean, playing with the eight point lead, obviously that's the most comfortable one score lead that you could have. Uh, you can give up a touchdown and still win the game because you still have the two point conversion. Uh, you're able to still take risks. You're able to play uh, aggressively still. If it becomes a five point game, uh, everything's different because you, you give up a touchdown. doesn't matter about the extra point. You're losing the game. So uh, yeah, I, Again, like you said, I don't want to call out Bill Belichick, but uh, he he like 
lots of like every single coach that, that we've seen in the NFL every once in a while makes a slip up, you know, and uh, when Peyton Manning and Tom Brady get together, how many times do we actually talk about the greatness, the great plays of Tom Brady and Peyton Manning? Uh, usually we're talking about a coaching gaffe, uh, auxiliary players coming up, uh, controversial calls, uh, p- penalties, uh, great defenses. Uh, you know, th- that's kind of what makes the rivalry so amazing is that it brings out some wacky and amazing stuff, not just out of those two quarterbacks, but out of everyone involved. And uh, yeah, I, I, Bill Belichick probably has to be rethinking that decision uh, late in the fourth quarter. Yeah, I mean, we said it earlier, both quarterbacks scrambled for first downs. At one point, they led their team in rushing. Tom Brady <laughs> led his team in rushing and passing. I could probably count on one hand the number of times that's happened. That might be the only time that's ever happened. So you're right. The, the, how When you think back to all the Manning-Brady rivalries, it really does get really wacky. You know, Belichick had that one decision. It was in Indianapolis. This was maybe five or six right. years ago, that fourth down when they were on their own 20-yard lines instead of punting it. I mean, that was – you talk about guts right there. That's insane. But it turned out to be no glory and because Manning got the ball with 20 yards to go, and I think he scored a touchdown in a second. One player we have not talked about yet, though, Owen Daniels. Those routes he ran on both scores, touchdown passes from Peyton Manning, were fantastic. The double move he pulled to get so open in the end zone, particularly the second catch where he had to control the ball and get both both feet in. Owen Daniels stepped up big. He was probably the Broncos' offensive MVP. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Owen Daniels uh, is essentially married to Gary Kubiak. He's played. He, he's the only coach uh, he's played for. Uh, he's followed Gary Kubiak everywhere in his career. Uh, really surprising to see him uh, be the offensive hero for the Broncos. Uh, yeah, those those are some great moves. And um, I forget who exactly was covering him both times. Um, it was He's he's a really good Patriots player. Jamie Collins, uh, one of the Patriots' best all-around players on defense, got burned twice by Owen Daniels, uh, not known for being the most uh, amazing pass-catching tight end. Uh, yeah, again, uh, an unsung hero coming up big, especially on an offense that has – uh, well, Vernon Davis at tight end, but Emmanuel Sanders and Demaryius Thomas on the outside. Uh, who would have thought it was Owen Daniels with two touchdowns? Only two catches of the game, too, and I just named him the offensive MVP. But I do have to tip my cap to Emmanuel Sanders, especially on that first drive. He had two fantastic catches that just kept him alive. I believe one came on third down. He he stepped up big as well. But the thing is, the Denver offense did not win this game. It was all the defense. The Denver offense, again, Peyton Manning only threw the ball 32 times for 176 yards. This was not your typical Peyton Manning offense. This was a very conservative, just don't make a mistake kind of offense. And it worked. They just set up their defense to stop the Patriots offense. And how many times do you put the game in your hands of your defense when you're playing a team like the New England Patriots? Yeah. Uh, again, it's it's a... It- I think this is a fitting end. It, if it is truly the end of Manning versus Brady, which you and I both have said it is, uh, and both believe that Manning's going to retire at the end of the year, I, I honestly think this is a fitting end because uh, this is usually what happens. Usually in the playoffs, when when Manning and Brady get together, it's usually cold. Uh, it's usually the defense that that makes some big plays late in the game. And that's nothing. Nothing changed in 2016. It was a, a, a very typical Manning versus Brady, at least for me. Uh, you know, watching it. So, Chris, 
Any last thoughts on the game before we get into some legacy talk? Yes, one last thought. Steven Jackson, big tip of the cat to him. Prior to this year, he had never played on a team that finished the year with a winning record. Can you believe that, Bob? Kind of insane. Never played a postseason game, scored a touchdown, made his mark on the AFC Championship game. I would have liked to see him and, of course, the Patriots playing the Super Bowl. But I'm glad because he's one of he has been one of my favorite players for a long time. A very hard running running back and a true professional. And it's good to see him at least get a taste of the playoffs before he likely also rides off into the sunset. Yeah, in the mid 2000s, he was probably one of the top three offensive players in the league, and it's very hard to uh, imagine that he. This is the only and. F- first time that that steven jackson has made the playoffs that that's very shocking actually um not just made the playoffs this is the first time he played on a team that finished the year with a winning record that is unbelievable yeah that, that i is. had the when, when the announcer one time said that stat i had to double check because he played on so many solid st louis teams but yeah they came close but they never had a winning, they were like seven and nine, seven and nine. They never had a winning record. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that that really is. And, and to think that he was out of football to start this season, and then uh, he finally got his shot to play on a winning team late in the season. That's pretty incredible. A really good player. Uh, hard to imagine. Uh, you know, I'm relatively young in terms of knowing NFL players uh, in the history, but it's hard to imagine that he's already done with his career. Chris, that's probably a good segue. It's hard to imagine an NFL without Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady at least happening once a year. Uh, what what are your general thoughts on the rivalry? Certainly the greatest football rivalry in my lifetime. Um, I'm sure, I mean, I know there were other great ones prior to my football existence, but, and I think you and I can, you will agree with me when I say that it's kind of defined our relationship too. Because uh, when we were growing up, Manning versus Brady was a big in our household, you were a big Manning fan, I was a big Brady fan, and I'm glad we were growing up in that era of the rivalry, because I really had it good then. Um, I think since we've kind of mellowed out a little bit and and have both come to appreciate the other quarterback just a little bit more, um, so it's not quite as intense as it once was, but we certainly, at least in our relationship, this rivalry has played a big part for us, and to see one of them, because I mean, when one of them goes, the rivalry's gone. So, and I, and we both think Manny's going to retire. I have my theories about it because I think the Broncos are going to have to sign Brock Osweiler. Manny's a big cap number. I think he's going to be forced into retirement. But again, it's pure speculation. The point is, if Manning retires, and he likely will, the rivalry's over, and it ends an era of football where we had the rare privilege of seeing two of the all-time greats go against each other in their prime. And it, it, it is going to be the end of an era. And it's kind of sad that, you know, this was the last chapter. It is sad. Um, watching Peyton Manning play this year, though, it's kind of time. <laughs> I don't really even want him to come back just because there have been times, that, uh, even on Sunday, when, when, when you watched him throw, it's just like, man, there are... 60 other people in the NFL that could throw the ball better than him right now. Uh, and obviously he, that is proof that, you know, the physical attributes of a quarterback don't mean everything, but sometimes it's hard to watch. And so this was a good end. It happened 
with a Super Bowl at stake. It was another great game. Came down to the wire. Came down to a, a interception for the two point conversion at the end. That's great. Uh, to have two quarterbacks in their prime go head to head, play seventeen times in their career, and for ev- the entire NFL community to tune in each time they play, uh, that's really special. And I don't even know I. I don't even know what comes close to it in, in the past of the NFL to have two singular players uh, attract the attention of, of anybody that, that that is interested in the NFL. It's kind of unheard of, and I'm not sure if we'll ever really get to see that again just because they to have those guys make the playoffs year in and year out to eventually find ways to face each other even though uh, you play so few of the 32 teams – regularly every year for for them to meet all those times is pretty impressive um and then just two very different people i mean you have the number one pick peyton manning the golden boy the guy that's had endorsement deals his whole nfl career then you have the seventh round pick tom brady who was the third string quarterback six round pick oh sorry don't don't shortchange him there bob (laughs) i'm trying to make it more dramatic but (laughs) <laughs> he was a third string quarterback had to wait until drew bledsoe got injured and, and and for the patriots to take a chance on him to lead the team to a super bowl to be the underdog and for them just two completely different people going head to head peyton manning being the stats guy tom brady the rings uh those both those planes have kind of leveled a little bit though brady's still in the lead with the rings Manning still in the lead with the stats uh just a great debate, you know. I don't think we'll ever really have something that comes close to it in the NFL ever again, just because it is such a barbershop debate. Uh, something that you really only see, like in the NBA, with you know who's better than MJ, is Kobe better? Uh, I I, re- I truly don't think we'll see it ever again in the NFL. Yeah, the only thing that I can think of that comes close off the top of my head is Brett Favre and John Elway when they met in that Super Bowl. That was kind of a special moment. But you had Elway at the end of his career, Favre kind of still in his prime. It it wasn't the same. They didn't overlap like Manning and Brady did so perfectly. I mean, they were the same era. And, you know, you had a lot of almost overlaps, like with Joe Montana. Maybe Montana-Elway, you know, they met in the Super Bowl. But they they played in different conferences, and that's the thing. When you have two great quarterbacks meet in the Super Bowl, it's hard for them to meet regularly because they're in different conferences. Marino and um, Montana were in different conferences, even though they played in the same era. So the the point I'm making here is it's it's so hard for teams that aren't in the same division to meet regularly, and that's I think what's amazing about this rivalry. It shows how dominant they've been because they kept winning their division. They kept getting they were guaranteed to play one another and so i think that it's going to be hard to see another rivalry like this but one that has a shot if cam newton were to pull off this super bowl and we'll talk about that later maybe newton and wilson maybe newton and wilson it would certainly be a a different rivalry um i just i guess only time will tell uh you know, when Peyton Manning and Tom Brady first met in 2001, nobody was like, oh, this is complete. This is going to be a rivalry. It took playoff matchups. It took, uh, you know, probably two playoff matchups for, for, for Peyton Manning to and Tom Brady to be a rivalry. It, it, and it honestly took Peyton Manning struggling against Brady early on in his career, kind of making Brady a villain, kind of making Peyton Manning like 
Michael Jordan, Tom Brady is the Detroit Pistons, something like that. Uh, for people to really get behind, for people to really hate the other, um, I'm not sure if 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 Wilson or Newton will ever kind of reach that drama. Though the rivalry is budding and does have potential, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. It's going to be sad to see them go. All right, we got to ask it: Who won the rivalry? Uh, the the NFL won the rivalry. <laughs> <laughs> Good non-answer. You know who I'm going to pick? Yeah. You know who I'm going to pick? No, I. There are two sides of the coin, you know, Super Bowls uh, or individual statistics. And, you know, like I said earlier, Manning has the stats, Brady has the rings, and, you know, they both have a Super Bowl. Tom Brady has lots of offensive numbers. Uh, It's really just who have you cheered for during the course of the rivalries who you're going to pick. Bob, I think there's still room in the Republican field. That was a very political answer, so you should probably throw your hat in the ring. Hey, I, there's a, I got a chance. I, I could probably pull better than some of the guys in there. <laughs> That's probably true. Um, but there was another game on on Sunday. It didn't last quite as long as this first one. Carolina made it very clear that they are the best team in the NFL with a schlacking of Arizona, 49-15. to And honestly, Bob, it really wasn't even that close. I'm not going to lie. I was kind of still digesting the whole Manning Brady loss. I mean, I, I was not very happy. I half watched the first quarter. I saw 14, nothing, then 17, nothing. And eventually I'm like, you know what? It's over. Carolina's won. And, and Cam Newton is proving why he's the MVP this year and why that Carolina defense is just as nasty, if not nastier than the Broncos. Yeah. It's going to be a very evenly matched uh, Super Bowl with with those two defenses, like you said, it, it was over in the first quarter, seventeen nothing. Carolina was up, and, you know. Good luck trying to come back against that defense. Uh, and it wasn't even really, you know, Carson Palmer's final line of four interceptions and a fumble lost. Uh, that really wasn't the story. I mean, three of those interceptions interceptions happened when the score was thirty four to seven. Uh, happened after the score was thirty four to seven late in in the game. So. Uh, only two turnover turnovers at that point it really was just the 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 Panthers defense making plays making stops not letting the run game get going uh the Cardinals abandoned that game very quickly uh and then Cam Newton just doing his thing running the ball 10 times for 47 yards and two touchdowns throwing the ball for over 300 yards and two touchdowns uh you know this ragtag group of receivers Ted Ginn with an end around for a touchdown Philly Brown over 100 yards and a touchdown. Greg Olson, the reliable target, over 100 yards as well. Uh, you know, it's it's all about Cam Newton. Uh, it, Panthers are a very special team, a very unique team, and, and they had it all on display in full uh, against a very good Arizona Cardinals team. I'm surprised it wasn't closer, but at the same time, uh, Panthers only have one loss the whole year. It's about time to give them some due and give them some props. They've been really good for a long time this year. Yeah, people had been sleeping on Carolina, and I don't know how that's possible. They're 15-1, and one, but I felt like people were still picking Seattle. I even picked Arizona pre-playoffs to go to the Super Bowl, and those people look very foolish because Carolina took the two next best teams in the NFC by most accounts and absolutely destroyed them. I know Seattle made a run in the second half, but it never trailed, and I don't think the Panthers have trailed once 
this entire postseason. That defense has been dominant. That defense has destroyed. Carol, uh, excuse me, Seattle was the hot, one of the hottest teams coming into the playoffs. They had just decimated Arizona in Week 17. Arizona may be cooling off a little bit, but they had decimated Green Bay a few weeks back. So the point is, it's not like these teams were some chumps. They destroyed two teams that a lot of people thought were going to go to the Super Bowl. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they continue to make statements um, and their statements because nobody really believes in them. Uh, you know, th- they really are the complete package. Uh, that defense is very much a mirror of what the Broncos are going to bring to the table. Really good cornerbacks, really good linebackers, and just a stout defensive front that you can't run against. Uh, if if you like that Patriots Broncos game, I think we're gonna get more of the same in that uh, a, a defensive slugfest. Uh, really impressive uh, win for the Panthers. Well, I know we just. Uh spent about 25 minutes on Manning Brady and five minutes on the Panthers, but there wasn't much to say about that Cardinals beat down. No. Next week, though, we got to keep you in suspense for our Super Bowl breakdown and our pick and all that stuff. Come on, we, we got two weeks to kill. We can't just give all the information right now, but I will say it's going to be some interesting things going on. I got I got a lot to say about Denver, but you'll have to wait for next week. Bob, we're both Cleveland fans, so we obviously heard the big news about David Blatt getting fired as Cleveland's head coach, or should I say former head coach. Tyron Lue took over. The debut didn't go very well Saturday night, losing to Chicago. Obviously, this is a huge story in the NBA because the Cleveland Cavaliers were number one in the East, coming off an NBA Finals trip. All seemed to be going well, at least on the surface, but you dig a little deeper, and it seems like the players just were not very happy with David Blatt What are your reactions to the Cavs making what is kind of a surprising, but not quite shocking move? Well, it's not, you're, it's not surprising. It's shocking that it happened now (laughs) when the Cavs are on top of the Eastern conference. Uh, It's shocking that it happened two games after that blowout loss to the Warriors, where they had a really good win against the LA Clippers, which is a really good team. Uh, They seem to have bounced back from that Warriors loss. Uh, it, it's just strange. It, it's really weird to think of that a coach can lead his team to the Eastern Conference Finals despite all the changing pieces, the trades, the injuries. He can come back for the second year, have a 732 win percentage, and on top of the Eastern Conference, despite more injuries, despite more attrition, and he can still lose his job a year and a half in. Uh, David Blatt, is the winningest coach to, to, to be fired in NBA history. And I believe I read a stat. I'm not entirely sure about this, but he might be the winningest coach in all four major sports to get fired at that time. Uh, so it's just a very strange situation. And for me, as a Cavs fan, it, it kind of leaves a sour taste in my mouth because what exactly do the Cavs want out of a coach? Because David Blatt has done has performed admirably and the Cavs have have short of beating the Golden State Warriors can't get much better than than this and it's just kind of shocking that NBA coaches are on such a short leash now uh it does not look like a fun or very uh stable job at this point uh it's hard to imagine that we had Kevin McHale David Blatt and Tom Thibodeau all fired a, a year, less than a year after leading their teams deep into the playoffs. Um, it's a very strange time in the NBA and, and very bizarre for the Cavs. 
Yeah, I certainly agree with that as far as the NBA having a short leash for coaches. Um, but at the same time, there were signs there that there was not all was not well on the David Blatt front. You know, there, yeah, I there were signs, I I, but what you, you can't tell me that there's a good reason other than the fact that LeBron didn't like him and that kind of trickled down the rest of the players not liking him. Well, I mean, I think that that is ultimately the reason. But here's the other problem. You know, they hired David Blatt before LeBron came, hired him to coach Andrew Wiggins in a young team, and then all of a sudden everything changes. I also think they did David Blatt a disservice by hiring Tyron Lue, the number two candidate for the job, and saddling him with that distraction. I think they set him up kind of unfairly, to tell you the truth. I think that... You know, either someone in Cleveland had to have a better finger on the pulse of what LeBron was thinking about doing. And don't tell me that these people don't talk to their agents because that's just ridiculous if you believe that they don't. So I think Cleveland just kind of dropped the ball. I mean, it's like, hey, wait a second. LeBron might come back. Let's just leave the head coaching job open. If he comes back, we'll hire. I mean, that's a risk you take. I'm sorry. I know it puts you a month behind in the coaching search. But if you possibly could get LeBron... I mean, maybe you attract a different kind of coach, one that's more capable of handling that kind of team they ultimately put together. Yeah, um, I'm not sure what all solidified, what all is true, but on that front, LeBron did want Mark Jackson to be the coach, and the Cavs front office, David Griffin in particular, I read, uh, stoutly refused and, and never budged in to, to hire Mark Jackson in place of David Blatt uh, when LeBron came home. So I'm not... I'm not entirely sure what happened, but at the same time, man, these are grown men playing with a coach who clearly is a good coach. Uh, He did a good job with the Cavs and he is a legend internationally with his 20 years of head coaching experience there. Uh, When he was hired for the Cavs, that move was praised because he, he's a really good coach. He was going to be an assistant for the golden state warriors uh, before he got the Cavs job. Uh, These are grown men. Like, can't you just accept the fact that you're winning, that it's going, that it, things are going well, and, and just kind of get along? I, I, it just seems very childish to me that he's not the guy that LeBron wanted. All right, he's gone, even though he he performed amazingly. Well, yeah, it certainly outside looking in looks childish. You've got a bunch of millionaire athletes who are getting paid to do a job that a lot of people would want to do, getting paid very handsomely, and they cannot you know, abide by the general rules of the workforce and accept a manager. And, you know, everyone in America has to accept the boss, that they have a boss. And sometimes people don't see eye to eye with their boss, but that happens. And yeah, when you're getting paid that kind of money and you are in that situation, everyday people outside looking in are going to see this as very childish. But at the same time, you know, LeBron James is LeBron James. He knows he has a lot of power. He's getting paid a lot of money. He's not the one who's going to get fired or traded. They're going to get rid of the people that he has a problem with. It's clear that it's his show, which brings me to my next point. LeBron James has set up this team the way he's wanted it, whether they'll admit it publicly or not. He lobbied for love. He endorsed the J.R. Smith trade. Now he has the coach he wants. Bottom line is what LeBron James wants, LeBron James gets. So all this isolation basketball they play, it's on LeBron James. And the bottom line is he promised Cleveland a championship. 
twice now. Time to step up and do everything necessary on the court to deliver the goods. I don't. It's clear that when the Cavs share the ball, pass the ball, play in harmony, they're a better team. That starts at the top, and the top is LeBron James. It's on him now. There's no more excuses. You cannot blame David Black. You cannot blame Deion Waiters and, and chemistry. You've had a year and a half. This team's been together for a year and a half. The chemistry is there. You've got the coach you want. Play the game. Get it done on the floor. No more excuses. I'm sick and tired of hearing about it. I want results, and they better produce come June. Yeah, I agree with you. I think LeBron is a coach's best friend, but he's also borderline uncoachable. Um, there are just times where he's just going to grab the ball and take a terrible three-point shot, and you have to live with it because he still is the greatest player in the NBA right now. Um, but, yeah, it, it, just, it, it just seems silly to me. And then you're totally right. The scapegoat has been David Blatt. He's gone. I don't really know if you can put if you can create another scapegoat. Uh, people seem to be leaning on Kevin Love, which seems really silly. It has to be all on LeBron now. Like it's championship or bust, and if if it's a bust, then uh, your legacy is going to take a hit, and that's a very concerning thing to LeBron James, who has made it clear, uh, really since he's 18 years old, that legacy means everything to him. It's time to win that championship for Cleveland. There are no more excuses. Uh, Tyron Lue is a guy that he was kind of a compromise for the LeBron camp and the Cleveland Cavaliers. They made him the highest paid assistant coach in the NBA for a reason. Uh, there, there are no more excuses at this point. They, they got to bring home the trophy. I think I know the answer to this one, Bob, but would you trade Kevin Love? Uh, I would trade Kevin Love for Kevin Durant uh, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe a couple for- other guys in the NBA that are most likely untradeable. Uh, not on the market. I I can't imagine you would trade Kevin Love and get back a better fitting piece than Kevin Love. He's an he's an amazing rebounder. He is one of the best stretch fours in the game. And when one when either LeBron or Kyrie are out of the game, he's a really good go to option. So short short of getting Kevin Durant, no, absolutely not. Yeah, this whole. Durant, or excuse me, Love and Mozgov for DeMarcus Cousins deal. I hate it. No, don't do it at all. You're killing your post depth for a guy who's going to have the same problems that Kevin Love did, only worse because I don't think he has the attitude, the stomach, what Kevin Love's going through. They're not using Kevin Love right. They need to get him on the block. Don't just set him on the wing on the three-point line. He is so much more than just a shooter. Start utilizing his full skill set. Yes, his defense is not good, and that's being nice, but his offense is fantastic. Get them going. Stop playing isolation basketball. Start getting this team up to team basketball like the Warriors and the Spurs plays because that's what they're going to need to do to beat them. They can win the East, but they need to step up and play as a team in order to beat the Warriors and the Spurs. And no trade. If they trade Kevin Love, they're killing the chemistry of this team. They're hitting the reset button. That's a dumb idea. Keep the team together. You got the talent to start playing basketball. It really is that simple. No, certainly. I think, um, you know, you can believe what rumors you want to about uh, what led to David Blatt being fired, but um, the one big knock on him has been the utilization of Kevin Love, especially in the post as like an offensive facilitator. Um, If Tyron Lue wants to be better than David Blatt, that is the key right there, is getting Love more involved offensively, differentiating his game getting the ball out of LeBron's hands as, as much as possible. Um, 
So we will see. They certainly have the talent. That and one other thing, pick up the tempo. I don't criticize teams for playing slow, but this team can play a little bit more fast. I'm not saying run like the Phoenix Suns used to do or the Golden State Warriors do, but they need to play more in transition because Kevin Love and LeBron James are two of the best outlet passers in the NBA. My goodness, man. They need to run a little bit more, play a little faster, kind of get speed up because they have the they have the personnel to do that, especially when Mozgov's on the bench and Tristan Thompson's in. So I like that Tyrone Liu is recognizing that they need to pick up the tempo a little bit. But yes, they need to utilize Kevin Love on the block a lot more, and they need to pick up the tempo a little bit. I think those two things, in addition to playing that team basketball, passing the ball, getting everyone involved, no isolations, they do those three things. They're going to be there, and they're going to give the Warriors and Spurs all they can handle. Whether or not their best is enough still might not be because the Warriors and Spurs are fantastic teams, but at least they will have a very good shot at delivering a championship. Yeah, certainly. Um, All right, well, let's move out of the NBA to the college ranks. We're going to talk our first college basketball of the season. Um, Chris, this is a very interesting season. Uh, You know, Last year, it was all about UK going undefeated they were the dominant team uh you know they lost half of their roster the nba draft it kind of looks like a wide open race at this point particularly uh the big 12 has stepped up that's a a conference that really wasn't in play last year uh oklahoma and kansas did have good years but now it seems like everybody in the big 12 has a chance to make a statement Uh, what are what are your general thoughts uh of the college basketball season so far well, so far, last year, there were a lot of returning teams. You had Arizona with some an Elite Eight run. You had Wisconsin with the talent from an Elite Eight run. And then you had the super teams of Duke and Kentucky really making a stamp on the season by this point. Right now, you don't really have that. You have a lot of guys at the top. I mean, North Carolina is an old-school name. Oklahoma has had success, but but they're not, you know, they've been up and down lately. Iowa certainly not a team you're used to seeing in the top five, much less top three. Texas A&M, and then our, oh, Ohio, Xavier, right up there in the top ten, too. So you got a lot of teams in Maryland really stepping forward as well. You've got a lot of teams that are in transition. You know, you've got Kentucky way down in the rankings, Duke down in the rankings, some of the traditional powers are not having the usual dominant year that they're having. So I think it's hard to pinpoint who's the number one team because we've gone through five different number ones. North Carolina, Kentucky, Michigan State, Kansas, and now Oklahoma. Oklahoma holding on to the number one ranking despite losing to Iowa State, at least in the AP poll, by just six votes. So it's kind of a nip-tuck, wide-open season. I don't see a dominant team in college basketball, like it was clear. Everyone was chasing Kentucky last year. That was just the obvious statement of the century. But this time around, it's a little bit more wide open, and even the teams at the top, I don't think anyone really feels that confident about them. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the Big 12 uh, laid low last year. They didn't really graduate anybody. Uh, I think in the two rounds of the NBA draft, only two guys from the Big 12 were taken. So, the Big 12 is returning a lot of talent, and they uh, are, are doing a good job differentiating uh, the, the the AP poll. Uh, usually it's it's littered with Big East, ACC, and then UK at the top, and, and now you just have a, a smorgasbord of teams. Um, and then if you look at the freshmen that, that came into the to college this year, if you look at that top 10 list of freshmen, uh, UK and Duke did get a guy, 
But everybody else, I mean, here are the colleges that they went to, LSU, Cal, Kansas, Maryland, Mississippi State, Marquette, UNLV. I mean, they're, it's not like uh, UK cleaned up in this recruiting season. Uh, the freshman talent is just diversified, and I think that's uh, aiding into the fact into giving us a more open field in the college basketball landscape. I'm very excited to transition into college basketball because this is about the time I do, you know, the bowl season, NFL playoffs. And let's be real, anything that's played before January, these college teams play about 14 preseason games. I mean, the non-conference season is such a joke. So the meat of the conference season is upon us, and conference tournaments are about a month away. This is when college basketball really revs up and gets fun. So I'm going to be excited to start watching more of these games a lot closer because it's such a wide open field it's going to make for march madness just that much more exciting yeah certainly this is about the time i get into basketball uh you know we have two weeks until the super bowl so i gotta fill my sports needs somewhere and uh usually i turn to basketball at this point uh any last thoughts on ncaa basketball no not yet only that my ohio state buckeyes are not having a fantastic season definitely on the bubble but hey it happens yeah you know, it's it's cyclical, especially in basketball. Um, all right, let's get into some quick hits. Uh, let's go Cleveland first. Josh Gordon applied for reinstatement. What are your thoughts on that? Predictable move. Uh, does he deserve a fifth chance? I don't know. He better he better make the most of it if he gets reinstated because one more time and he's really out. I mean, we've said that the last two times, but fact of the matter is, in 2013, he only played 14 games didn't have an elite quarterback and still led the league in receiving yards. He has elite level talent. His mind needs to be there. If he's willing to clean up and just not do stupid stuff. And really it's, it's just stupid stuff. I mean, he's smoking marijuana and drinking. I mean, come on, just do it responsibly. And you're in the NFL. That's, that's all you have to do. It's not like he has domestic violence charges against him. It's just marijuana and alcohol. Just, clean it up and focus on football and he'll be one of the best players in the game. Yeah. It's, it's really just him doing it, doing this stuff at the wrong time. Um, you think he would be smarter about it. Uh, we'll see if he gets reinstated. Uh, he's coming back to a situation with, with Hugh Jackson and really the coaching staff that he's brought along with him. Those are all no nonsense guys. Really. If, if Josh Gordon gives an, an inch of being a bad egg or, or giving attitude, I, I think he, his chances are done with Cleveland, but uh, he, you said how talented he, he can be if he's on the field. I mean, that would be a nice boon for the Cleveland Browns. So we will see, um, moving forward to the MLB, we got some free agency signings. Uh, the last two sluggers are off the market. Justin Upton to the Detroit Tigers, six years, $132 million. That's about $22 million a year. And then Yoenna Cespedes coming back to the New York Mets, a three year, $75 million deal. Uh, he has a, player opt out after the first year. So $27.5 million guaranteed. That's the second highest annual payout to a position player in MLB history. Chris, what are your thoughts on those moves? Well, I think the Cespedes contract is fantastic. It's only a three-year deal, even though it's a lot of money. That's not a lot of pressure on the club. And Cespedes has some flexibility there. I think the Mets made out very well in that contract because they got arguably the best slugger on the market for I mean, yeah, they have to pay him high in the first year, but honestly, those next two years, if he opts in, are pretty good value uh, compared to what other guys are getting paid. Justin Upton, man, six years. I don't like six-year deals, and 
I think the Tigers might be grasping here. I, I don't don't like that one as much. Uh, I, I understand the trepidation with Justin Upton, but he's 28 years old, six years, $22 million payout a year. Uh, he really has been consistent, uh, plays a high volume of games. Uh, I think a career low is 108. That's when he was 20 years old in Arizona. Since then, the low has been 133 games played. Uh, really averages over 20 home runs a, a year. He strikes out a lot, but you know, so does Chris Davis. So does Yoannis Cespedes. Um, they might, they might turn some value out of that. Um, you know, going forward, contracts only get bigger. So I'm not as hesitant about that, uh, that deal as you are. He, he's he's going to play until he's 34 on that contract. So they, they definitely are going to get some good years out of him. And then Cespedes, uh, he's 30. so a little bit older, but he can play great defense in the outfield. He can run. He's been a model of consistency as well, has not missed a lot of time. Uh, I think it's a great move for the Mets, bringing him back and getting him in probably the last prime years of his career, 30 through 33. So a good move uh, for the Mets. Yeah, like I said, I like the Mets deal a little bit better than the Tigers, though Upton being 28, I guess I lost track of his age there. Not as bad. Six years at 28 years old, not as bad as I thought. So Justin Upton, he's solid but I'm just worried. I mean, you know, a guy who's only flirting with 20 home runs, I'm hesitant to give that kind of money to. I want to see him more in the 30-35s. Yeah, well, Jonas Cespedes has only top 30 home runs once. Just keep that in mind. He's usually a 20 home run guy. So I, I understand. Maybe I'm that- still living in the 90s where, where everyone's on steroids. So I, I got to adjust to this new era of <laughs> 20s, the new 50 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And Justin Upton, you know, he's been around playing in the big league since he's 19. So that's probably why you think he's a little bit older than, than what he is. He's had a already a really long career and uh, he's only 28. That's crazy, man. Yeah. He's our age. He's younger than me. He's making all that money. That's crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm too old, Bob. I'm too old. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Have you heard this tennis story? About 16 players who have been ranked in the top 50 have been repeatedly flagged to the Tennis Integrity Unit, I like that name, over suspicions that they have thrown matches. So some match fixing going on at a very high level. All of the players, some even winning Grand Slam titles, they were all allowed to continue to compete. Now, it doesn't specify whether those Grand Slam titles were singles or doubles. Recently, a mixed doubles match was flagged, uh, shut down a website, so... Bob, what are your thoughts on this? Because this has the potential to be a disastrous story for the game of tennis. Yeah, it could be really bad for for tennis. Uh, You know, my thoughts are they play a lot of matches, not just Grand Slam tournaments, but, you know, the season is almost year round. Uh, There are a lot of matches to fix. And and so it is very concerning that some big names might be on that list. But, um, you know, I, I guess we'll just need more information. I think if they had tangible hard evidence we would hear we would probably hear some things hear some things happening um and then about that mixed doubles match you know the report that you're referring to came out a few days ago and now the mixed doubles match got flagged uh just yesterday morning uh, you know with the time change i'm not sure but less than 24 hours ago uh talk about some gumption uh you know price match fixing is on the minds of everybody and uh you know they're still going ahead with it so very interesting that's like saying the president of fifa can run again for a second term after he's being investigated by 17 world authorities or something ridiculous like that 
But anyway, again, I think we need a lot more information about this because the report doesn't name any names. It's very vague. It just says that it's happening. And, you know, you're right. There are a ton of matches that can be fixed, a ton of matches that people don't even, like, really watch, to tell you the truth. I mean, other than the Grand Slams and maybe some of those Masters 1000 series, there's, like, a 500 series and a 250 series. That, of course, is the amount of points you win for winning that tournament. So the 1000 series is obviously very important, and the Grand Slams even more important. But once you get down in that middle and low tier, I mean – the casual sports fan, they just do not care about those matches. Sorry to tennis, but I'm even a tennis fan, and I don't even get to watch a lot of those matches. So th- the point is, there's a lot of stuff go- that could go on, and it's not like there's like a lot of eyes on it. Like the NFL couldn't get away with this or something like that. Like There are a lot of people who might not be following it that closely. Yeah, th- I think there's a lot of room to get away with it, so... Um... Like I said, if if there was hard evidence, uh, we would hear about it. Maybe there will be some coming uh, shortly, but it's something to watch for sure. Uh, a lot of room to, to fix matches in tennis. And the widespread internationalism of tennis doesn't help either because you have all these different countries with all these different laws, and you could have a bet take place on a tournament here, but the website's based here, and it's just... I, am, I cannot imagine this investigation would be fun for anyone. It's got to be one of the most convoluted webs in the world. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, though, some final thoughts on the Australian Open because we want to finish on a good note. Men's side seems to be going as planned, except for that Nadal and Walrinka bracket. I did have Gail Monfils upsetting Nadal, but he didn't play Nadal. Nadal lost in the first round. So the men's side pretty much going to plan some good matches there. I like Andy Murray. I still like Novak Djokovic. Hopefully we'll get a Djokovic uh, Federer semifinal. Women's side, Sharapova-Williams. The rivalry that's not really a rivalry because Maria Sharapova hasn't beaten Serena Williams since 2004. <laughs> and she's like 2-17 and 17 <laughs> against her. So that those are ridiculous numbers because those are two huge names. You would think Sharapova would have won a little bit more. No, for sure, yeah. Um, that That is very surprising. Uh It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens as the Australian Open progresses and, and some of these big names uh, go head-to-head. I still like Azarenka, man. All her competition on the bottom half lost. Even Madison Keys. I really wanted Madison Keys to get to the semi as a US, USA man. I wanted John Isner, too. He let me down a little bit in round four. I thought he'd break that streak and get to the quarters. But Serena did not get an easy draw. She gets Sharapova and then probably the number four seed, Rod Wanstika. Or Radwanska. I'm sorry for butchering that name. <laughs> and then probably Azarenka in the final. So she, she's the one seed, but she's going to have to play three, probably three very tough players. So, yeah. Looking forward to it. It should be fun. Hopefully, I can stay up for some of these matches. They occur at like three in the morning. But anyway, we have packed a lot into this podcast. A lot of Manning Brady, a lot of football. Got some basketball in there. As football is winding down, we are certainly going to be transitioning over to some more basketball and baseball's right around the corner pitchers and catchers reports in a couple weeks i know our mom is looking forward to that because she is a huge baseball fan but thank you all for listening once again please come back to fenleyroadsports.com check out some of our new content we'll have some blogs up for you this week new podcast called volume the 10 just launched this week tennessee focused if you're a titans grizzlies predators fan please check that out subscribe via itunes fenley road sports Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Search Fenley Road Sports. 
Come back to FamilyRoadSports.com. And, of course, come back next week for another episode of What Are You Talking About? We'll preview the Super Bowl and talk more sports. But until then, take care. All right. I'll see you, Chris. Take it easy, Bob.